0: Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic, who has been digging through the archives assiduously to find some of the greatest interviews you have never heard. Tom, where are we starting this week?
1: Well, Christopher, I've got good news and bad news, and they're both the same news, which is really fun. uh, Because it's good news for me (laughs) because I found more audio... Of Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley from Kiss. (laughs) Uh. Now, I'm not a big Gene Simmons fan, but I'm a huge Kiss fan from that era. We've got a couple of interviews from Gene from 1976 and 1979, and we've Uh. got more audio from Paul Stanley from 1999, and even you will have to agree, he's actually pretty likable in this one, and it's hard to believe... Uh, that these guys know each other in any way, shape, or form.
0: I'm going to dig out that picture I took in your office of, of all your little Kiss dolls, just to prove to people that this guy is not... He's no pretender when it comes to Kiss love. He is no. part of the army, big time.
1: Well, absolutely. He might be a, you know, a
0: general in the Kiss army, I think.
1: thats so. I am not a general. But at the time, <laughs> I really loved it. And, you know, I still love those songs that I loved then. Um, but the funny thing is, is when I first really loved Kiss... I hadn't even seen them at that point. And it was on the radio, and the song Shout It Out Loud came out in 1976. Maybe early 77, I'm, I was, you know, in my dad's car listening to it, and I went, what is that? I love that. I love how powerful that vocal is. I love those harmonies. I love the big sound. And then I find out that it's Kiss, and I didn't really know that. I vaguely knew Rock and Roll All Night at that point. And I was just blown away by the sound of that song, and then I saw them and I went, oh, that's cool. And it just took hmm. off from there. And then I bought all their albums. And I I, I had like 15 albums by 1980. And I started... Um, I, I was a fan of theirs starting in 1976, so I just went crazy. So this was a big yes, deal for me.
0: <laughs> well, you know, for me, it's not so much what is that, it's why. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah,
0: well, no kidding. And that's not all we have this week, right, Tom? That's right, Christopher. We've got some really
1: great clips of Roger McGuinn of The Birds talking about that band's biggest songs. It's interesting how a band's history can be told through its discography, but you'll hear just that also. I knew that the birds were influenced by Bob Dylan, but I didn't really realize how they influenced Dylan himself. It's a really cool story. And I just want to take a second to remind you that our archives are stuffed with interviews from all genres of artists. We have David Bowie in Episodes 110 and 215. We have Prince in Episode 107 and Lionel Richie in 506. A fantastic series of clips with Tina Turner in 202. Stevie Nicks in Shows 120, 309 and 508. How about the 80s? We have Boy George in Episode 107 and an entire 80s episode. That's show number 315. For more current artists, we have Rihanna and Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, Bruno Mars, Coldplay, and Lady Gaga. For Hard Rock, we have Motorhead, ACDC, Def Leppard, Rush, Iron Maiden. And just to cleanse the palate a little bit, we even have Meatloaf and Casey and the Sunshine Band. Check out all of our past episodes to get caught up. Okay, back to this week's show. Let's get started with Kiss. Shout it out loud, KISS from the great album Destroyer from 1976. And if Christopher and I <sighs> And if Christopher and I disagree on one thing, it is mm. the band Kiss. But if we agree on another, it is how unlikable one of the members of that <laughs>
0: band is. Christopher, go ahead. Well, Tom, when I wrote my book, Is This Live? Inside the wild early years of Much Music, Mm -hmm. the nation's music station, I had no idea how popular Chapter 16 would be. (laughs) Now, I should have seen it coming since it celebrated the pomposity, the pettiness, the belligerence, and the downright ridiculousness of Genus (laughs) Rockstaricus.
2: All (laughs) on display
0: (laughs) interviews. We all had one or two. You know, like, for example, the subjects were gifted at lofty pronouncements like, I hate Led Zeppelin and everything they've spawned, so spake Elvis Costello. Or pretending the interviewer doesn't exist, like when Mark Knopfler stood with his back to my cameraman and myself at Wembley Arena for a very long time. Or barfing instead of talking, as Slash did with Laurie Brown. Or oh. overreacting, as Chris Isaac did with Denise Donlan's question about the anniversary of Elvis' death, when he said, I don't have to take this shit. That was his considered reply. Okay. Perhaps it was all in jest when Joey (laughs) Ramone threatened to slit Steve Anthony's throat with a pair of scissors, but maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. And you'd be glad you weren't in Kim Clark Chapniss's shoes when Johnny Rotten threw grapes at him across a hotel room in lieu of being interviewed. Boy, oh boy. That's crazy. on that marquee of infamy, one name outshines them all. KISS. All caps. No taste.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we have two interviews with Gene Simmons to kick off our Kissathon. Uh, neither are particularly outrageous. That's right. Sorry to disappoint you. Mm-hmm. Although, in our first clip, a question about influence somehow comes around to being about getting horny.
2: <laughs> not just musical influences. We're, we're more than a musical band. We're not just musicians. We're entertainers, you know. My influences, obviously, were the British bands in the 60s, because yeah. that's what I grew up with. Uh, the Who and Hendrix, just anybody that did anything out of the ordinary on stage that gave me a show. Uh, one of the best shows that I ever saw was when Hendrix first came out, started to do all those very obvious things. I just couldn't believe that anybody had the uh, balls, can you say that? Sure. To uh, get up on stage and show us that people, in fact, get horny.
1: It always comes down to that with Gene Simmons, doesn't it? By the Mm -hmm. way, uh, these first two clips come from 1976 with the release of the album Destroyer, which was produced by Bob Ezrin, and in my mind, is by far uh, their best album. Now, I just want to tell a very quick story. Yes. So Bob Ezrin, Toronto producer, is recruited because he's worked with um, Alice Cooper and a bunch of other artists to record the new album for Kiss. He goes in there and basically teaches them how to play their instruments to some degree. Like he didn't, they didn't know about meter, they didn't know about 4-4 time and all that stuff. And they, they'd only <laughs> made four albums by that point. So he teaches them and creates what I consider to be, if you can use this word when you're talking about Kiss, their masterpiece, which is Destroyer. I think the album is fantastic. <laughs> and it becomes hugely popular because it has the song Beth on it, and it has Detroit Rock City on it which i believe is their best song and also shouted out loud. So that album is released it sells a ton but the fans, the hardcore fans of the band did not like it because of Beth. The band was told by many fans that they'd sold out. So they actually loved the album when they released it, but about 2 weeks later they started to hate their own album. And they fired Bob Ezrin from recording the next album and went back to their original producer, Eddie Kramer. Now, in hindsight, they speak highly of that album, but it really weirded them out. The reaction of the fans and even the rock press that they had sold out uh, with that album, even though it has stood the test of time as their best album.
0: I'm trying to grapple with the concept of Kiss selling out. It's just <laughs> it's a little... It's a little abstract for me. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Nevertheless, Gene does talk about being commercial. You know, like like the Beatles.
2: Look, the Beatles were commercial. Commercial means uh, people that go out and buy things and you're obviously successful. What, what you're really trying to say is, did we intentionally come out and do that? Yeah. We intentionally came out and tried to be entertaining for basically that reason. Uh, we didn't want to be another band that, st- that got up on stage in their denims and strummed folk guitars uh, that couldn't project more than 10 rows back. We want to project a 1,000 rows back so that the last kid in the last row in the highest seat in the back of the Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto can get off on the show. Yeah. That last kid that paid 750 650 for that seat has got to enjoy the show as much as that first kid sitting up front. We spare no expense in making sure that our show is the best.
1: Okay, so let's unpack that one a bit. Kiss being asked about being so commercial. So they were often dismissed by critics and the rock press because of the theatrics, and so they were often put on the defensive. But Gene is right. They did go all out for their fans, and for the first few tours, they spent far more on their stage show than they brought in. It was a money-losing proposition, but those stage shows eventually paid off, and us fans loved it. Now let's leap forward to 1979. 1979. That's Kiss from the album Dynasty from 1979, and I was made for loving you. <laughs>
0: Tom? Yeah. Set the Wayback Machine. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so they're promoting the album Dynasty. Here are Gene's thoughts on the collected works of Kiss.
4: It's the 15th Kiss release. You have to make a distinction between that and, a, and a, an album of new material, you know? It's the 12th all original album, in other words, of new material.
3: So the solo albums aren't even counted in that 15, total. Yes, they
4: are. Ah. Oh, yes, they are. Well, Count those because although they were individual solo albums, they were also, you know, part of the Kiss mystique. They were the, the concept of the albums, even though each one of us worked on, on his own album, uh, each album was really counted as a Kiss album. In fact, we made sure of that by putting Kiss up the upper left-hand corner.
1: As a KISS fan, I loved all of those albums, including the four solo albums that were released in 1978. Even if in hindsight, they don't exactly hold up. Uh, Well, actually, even like three weeks later, they didn't hold up. But those albums (laughs) were actually the epitome of rock star excess and record company bravado. They actually shipped a million copies of each one of the Kiss solo albums to record stores, but they only sold a fraction of those, and it was a terrible debacle in the history of rock promotion. It was one of the worst. And only one of the guys actually sold a few copies of his solo album, and that was Ace Frehley, because of this song. Ace Frehley from 1978 and New York Groove, a great song and the only hit from the four Kiss solo albums. So now you know, now you're up to date.
0: Yes, whether whether I want to be or not. Exactly. You know, one of the things, they had expectations for uh, their opening acts, but also for themselves.
1: We are, you know, we are
4: very committed to making sure when we go on stage that we chew and spit out any band that walks on there with us. I mean, the point of playing with another band is to top them, no matter who it is. I mean, and the, the winners of that kind of attitude are the audience, because they get a better show. Right. You know, we always make sure that the bands that play with us are terrific little bands. The bands we took out last time were, uh, let me see, we took out Uriah Heep and Bob Seger and Ted Nugent and Cheap Trick, lots of bands that, are, that have obviously come up in the world.
1: So the first time I saw Kiss Christopher was in 1977, and the opening act was yeah. Cheap Trick, as Gene Simmons mentions there. And we in the audience booed them mercilessly. We had no idea Ooh. who they were. They had not had any hits yet, and they looked so geeky, especially Rick Nielsen, right, with the with the flipped, <laughs> with the yeah. flipped up uh, <laughs> you know look and the and the bow tie and all that stuff. Of course, many of us would later become fans, also because of the song "Surrender," where they actually mentioned Kiss in the song. So there you go. Now, as for Ted Nugent, I saw him open for KISS about 15 years ago, and I actually had to walk out, Christopher. He was spewing mm. some very, very hateful rhetoric from the stage. It was a lot of anti-immigrant stuff, and it was truly terrible, and I had to get out of there until he was finished. I did not like that moment, and I haven't liked him since.
0: Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so just you know, thinking about this, um, what's like the worst example you've seen where you've gone to see a band... And the opening act has just been destroyed by the, by the audience.
1: Well, we've talked about this before. For me, it was Joan Jett and the Blackhearts at the second police picnic right. in Toronto, um, where she was on a card that included all new wave acts, everything from the spoon to the flock of seagulls to the English beat to talking right. heads, and then the police, who were all considered kind of new wave. And Joan Jett was considered almost this heavy metal rock Person, and it didn't suit. Now, in hindsight, she has the bona fides to be there. She belonged there, but at the at the time, we didn't understand. I was n- definitely not one of the people throwing apples and other things on stage because she was getting, her <sighs> band was getting pelted, and it was there's there was at least thirty thousand people there, and most of them were booing, and you know, wow. I might have not been happy to see her there. But a lot of us were very unhappy with the f- with how she was treated. But that was, that was the one that stands out the most for me.
0: Well, the worst treatment that I've ever seen an audience give an artist was Tom Waits at Massey Hall. Oh, wow. He was the opening act for Frank Zappa. Mm. And he got eaten alive and had to leave the stage after a few songs. It was just, it was brutal. That's awful. I know. But not that much later, like within a year or so later, he came back and triumphantly was opening for Bonnie Raitt, and he put on a phenomenal show, and he was loved by the audience. So That's great. Hopefully that erased his earlier memory, and also on the same stage. So there you go. Tom, you've been telling me about a new podcast you've been listening to. That's right,
1: Christopher. It's called No Sleep Till Sudbury, hosted by Brent Jensen. A couple of people that I knew had mentioned Brent to me, And he wrote a book by the same name, No Sleep Till Sudbury, and his experience in growing up and listening to music was similar to mine, so I read the book and started listening to his
0: podcast. And and he talks to special guests too, right?
1: Oh, he sure does. And Christopher, here are some of the guests that I know that you would be particularly interested in. Brett does an incredible interview with David Clayton Thomas, in which David talks about everything from blood, sweat, and tears to Billie Eilish. And he has good and and bad things to say about Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and mostly good things to say about Billie Eilish. So that's pretty interesting. He he also has recent interviews with a guy you know, Rob Proust from The Spoons. Right. Now a Broadway musician and arranger and a friend of the show. He's a big listener to the show. Mark Jordan, another friend of yours and friend of the show, he's talked to him Rick Emmett from Triumph, and someone you may know a little bit, your former colleague, Erica M. from Much Music. Ah, E Squared, yes, my buddy. E Squared, oh, I love that, I love that. That's actually a very, very recent podcast. I haven't even heard that one. Uh, That's how new it is, so uh, I'm definitely going to to have a listen to that one. Well, I am definitely going to have to check this out. That's No Sleep Till Sudbury, wherever you find your favorite
0: podcasts.
1: All right. Back to the Gene Simmons interview. Let's see, uh, what else does Gene have to say here,
0: Christopher? Well, he confirms for us the fact that, yes, they're rich. That's
4: right. When a lot of bands go uh, and retire to their villas in France or wherever, uh, we've decided to to live in New York, stay there, and, you know, record albums and go out on tours. That's what makes us happy. The truth is, we really really don't have to do this at all. Uh, Obviously, we could... uh, You know, I guess if we wanted to, we could go to the moon and buy it or something. But that's not really what makes us happy. What makes us uh, happy is being up there on stage and seeing the adrenaline rush that an entire audience can have. And that gets us off. I mean, it's a legal kind of high.
1: You know, Gene was not very much into drugs and alcohol, but a couple of his bandmates were. And that caused a lot of friction in the band. Uh, which is likely why Ace Frehley and Peter Chris were the first to leave. Not only did they leave, they actually had to sell their characters, meaning their makeup and costume design back to the band so that their replacements could wear them. Oh, that's cruel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I know I, I hardly I don't know if I can carry on. <laughs> Knowing Please this. do. Ta da. Meet <laughs> the servants of the people. <laughs>
1: But first, Gene is asked if they will ever take off their makeup.
4: No, we will never take the makeup off. Not as long as people want us to keep it. Ultimately, that's really what it comes down to. We are the servants of the people. It's a kind of a corny, awkward phrase, but that's the truth. Without people out there, there's no reason for us to exist. Our main purpose in being around us too is to be able to
3: play for people. At the same time, you have admitted in the past that you're manipulating, that you're creating something in order to cash in on.
4: Well, the truth is we don't have to do any of this for
3: money. (laughs) Not anymore. Yeah.
1: So they would continue to wear the makeup and costumes for another four more years, and when they took off the makeup for about ten years, and it's funny, but when the makeup came off, I checked out, even though they had some pretty big hits in the early to mid-80s. But once that came off, I just went, well, I don't really like their new stuff anyway, so I'm out. And I didn't come back to them until 1996 when they reunited in full makeup and (laughs) costumes for their reunion tour. So there.
0: Oh, Tom, true to form. This is great. (laughs) Confessions of Tom Joe, Kiss fan at large. So, okay, moving from Gene to Paul. Tom, are these guys really in the same band? Do they really live like minutes away from each other? And are they like brothers, as they say? (laughs) Paul Stanley was in Toronto in 1999 for an extended stay as he starred in The Phantom of the Opera, and he joined your morning show, Tom.
1: Yes, you can hear me laughing in the background as Roger Ashby, Marilyn Dennis, and Rick Hodge chat with him, and we really did have a lot of fun with him, uh, and it was first thing in the morning, right? It's a, it's a morning show, and of course, rock stars aren't used to being there, so have a listen to this.
5: And now, ladies and gentlemen, would you please say hello to Paul Stanley? Yeah. I'm so surprised that I'm here on time. Well, know?
6: most most uh, um, people of your stature are never on time.
5: Well, you know, most people of my stature haven't gone to bed yet.
6: <laughs> did you go to bed last night? Yes,
5: I actually did. I got a few hours sleep and all I'm right. here. And I'm excited to be here. And for all the people who are listening, everybody here has caffeine IVs. Yes. You
6: know? <laughs> we do, don't we? Yeah.
3: Paul Stanley of Kiss and Phantom of the Opera. So you're in town for how long now?
5: I'm in town, uh, I start September 28th. And I'm here through October 31st, and uh, they just told me that opening night and the next night there are actually tickets available. So go get your tickets today because I want to see everybody there. I hear
6: you're terrific. I got to come and see the show. Tom went to see you, mm-hmm. Tom, Tom, our producer, who's the biggest Kiss fan there is in the world. That's in great. the world,
3: you know it's interesting. But a year ago, I went to uh, I went to a concert, and one of the opening acts, they had uh, two girls came out dressed like Kiss, <laughs> and they did and they did some highlights of Kiss tunes, mm-hmm. but they did a, did them as show tunes. <laughs> which I thought was kind of neat
6: <laughs>
3: wow where are they now
4: <laughs> I don't know they're, they're playing
3: around town somewhere I can't, I can't remember their names but it was uh, it, it was kind of neat
6: there's a new, new idea
3: for
5: you after the Phantom ends that's what you can do huh? you know Hey, Paul. I, I was trying to wonder why it was worth getting up this early, and now I know. Now yeah. you know.
6: What are you going to do once uh, Phantom uh, ends?
5: Um, there's going to be a, another Kiss tour, uh, although All I'm right. not quite sure when. And then I'm supposed to also do uh, Jekyll and Hyde on Broadway. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, so that's, that's what's coming up next.
6: Well, that's exciting. So yeah. is that, uh, what, next year or a year uh, yeah, after? Yeah, that'll
5: be after, after New Year. I should be doing Broadway. Excellent. But so I'll, this this is your future, then? You, you want to be doing this stuff? Well, you know, i got to pay the rent, you know. <laughs>
1: This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Still to come, one of the most influential bands of the 60s and one of your favorites, Christopher. But first, let's continue with our 1999 chat with Paul Stanley of KISS. Here's Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis.
6: How did the role of Phantom come your way?
5: was interesting about um... actually about ten or eleven years ago when i was in london i saw the show Mm -hmm. and just thought it was amazing cuz you know some people have these ideas about theater being very polite and everybody's there in white gloves and ties and you know at least in london you know theater is much more for for every every man you know Mm -hmm. it's something that you do as readily as you go to the movies you know to see films so i thought it would be great for you know it would be something great that i would love to do because it's just a great piece of theater so About eight or nine months ago, I got a call. Was I interested in doing Phantom in Toronto? And I said, Absolutely. And they said, Well, you got to go to New York and audition for uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's people and Hal Prince's people, which is, I am. You know, not to brag, but I haven't auditioned for anything in quite a while. But I said, not a problem. Went to New York and the uh, audition. They said, you're it. When can you do it? So that was the start of it. And uh, the first run was absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Did 80 shows and um, 80 standing ovations. And when I first saw the people stand up, you know, I was amazed because I thought, well, are they leaving early? <laughs> But uh, that was great, and it's great to be back. And um, we start again on Tuesday. And, uh, you know, like I was saying, they actually said that there were tickets available for, I think, Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah. So um, it's it's me announcing to you people that... Get out of your pajamas, put on your clothes and go get tickets. We'll give some away too yeah, before nine o'clock. He sings and sells. <laughs>
3: this isn't bad.
6: Is, it, th- is this being on uh, on stage though as demanding as it is to be on uh, tour with Kiss? I mean, w- or is
5: there no comparison? Well, I get to keep my shirt on and, and uh...
6: <laughs> less makeup?
3: <laughs> less, less
5: makeup. In which one though? Wait I a know, minute. Wait. I, <laughs> I wear lower heels, you know, but, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's tremendously demanding. It's yeah. a whole different discipline to do a show like that. And, uh, you know when you're doing 8 shows a week you really yeah. have to, it's to discipline yourself you got to get sleep you got to eat right and um you know you're really under a microscope every time you step on stage because there there are key uh, key moments in the show where it's really just you and an orchestra mm-hmm. and uh you know, when when people are paying that kind of money, they really deserve to see something great. And besides Phantom being a great show, I'm I'm determined that every night I go out there, you know, people are going to walk out after the show and say how great it was.
6: What did your What did your wife have anything to say about your performance?
5: Yeah, you know, she's seen the show before, and it was. Uh, uh, she's an actress, and when she saw the show, she quickly forgot it was me. And at the end of the show, you know, she was, in, you know, in tears. It's a, it's a, a really moving show, but yeah. it's very exciting. Mm. And for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's, um, it's better than a whole lot of films that you could go see. It's a, it's just a great piece of theater, and there's great special effects, yeah. and the uh, the story's great, the music's great. And I wouldn't be up this early if I didn't think <laughs> it was great. Well, <laughs> mm. I, I know both with your with the
3: band and with the uh, with the play, mm. you're you're concentrating on on what you're doing but you got to look out once in a while and and see the audience what are the differences between the two audiences I mean
5: there must be something going on in your mind there well I mean that's an interesting question but um, part of what makes theater so interesting for me is that uh, in the band context you're always aware of the audience and you're playing to them, mm-hmm. whereas in theater you're oblivious to the audience, because ah. basically they're watching the action unfold, so they're actually the voyeurs, they're people who are watching through the window, so the idea is to not acknowledge them so I usually don't see the audience till the end of the show so with know. the band, you're the voyeur Ab- absolutely, yeah. you know, there, there's this you know, it's as interesting to watch the audience as it is for the audience to watch the band on stage but mm-hmm. when I'm doing Phantom, I'm pretty oblivious to the audience mm-hmm. until the end of the show
1: Oh, I really like that clip. He's so funny and charming and intelligent. Paul Stanley from Kiss, but he really does have that rock star confidence. Nevertheless, he's very likable.
0: Why don't you marry him then? (laughs) (laughs)
3: What
1: What are you,
0: 12? (laughs) I know you are, but what am I? (laughs) Oh, here we go. Okay, let's keep going, buddy. Let's keep going. So along with some questions from the uh, audience, Marilyn Dennis asked Paul about his Kiss memorabilia collection and got a very saucy
6: reply.
3: We've got somebody on the line who wants to say hello
0: to
6: you, Paul. Hi. Hi. What's your name? It's Veda. Veda, where are you calling from? Scarborough. Okay, go ahead. Paul, hello.
5: Hi, sweetie.
6: I just want to say that you're, you're a fantastic performer.
5: Thank you so much.
6: And I want to ask you, is this going to be Kiss's final tour?
5: Good question. You know, I've learned after 20 years that that it's hard to ever know when, when enough is enough, and uh, uh, I can't really say. The best thing to do is to, to go out every time we do a show and to do it as though it is the last, so that you give it your all, and... Uh, you know, like anything else in life, I'm sure you've been with some people where you like them to give 100% and you go away smiling. So that's what we try to do every time.
6: <laughs> well, you guys definitely do give 100% because I've seen you about four times myself and wow. I have a friend that's seen you 18 times. Wow. I tried to get through this morning. I was caller number two when you had your uh, ticket. So, because his birthday is on Tuesday also. So. You know what
3: we're going to no, do, that's Beta? Okay. We're going to give you some tickets to yeah. go and see Phantom. Yeah. Oh, thank
6: you. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. You're
3: welcome. Stay on the line for a few minutes.
6: Thanks. I just have a quick Question for Paul: Do you own, uh, you know, Kiss uh, bed sheets, uh, <laughs> pillowcases? You ought to know. Well, I know I do.
5: <laughs> Good one.
6: So, did you did you think that was silly when they when they started marketing all the Kiss stuff, like the dolls and the this and I, that? Or I what?
5: was amazed by it. You know, so my first reaction was was more bewilderment. You know, I couldn't imagine that people were were putting it out, and I was amazed that people were buying it. But right. uh, nowadays, some of the the old memorabilia is worth a fortune mm-hmm. yeah it, it really is is worth a lot of money and it, it's i uh, I'm amazed you know it's amazing to be part of a band that has the kind of history and has broken as much ground so as do you have a lot have.
6: of that stuff? I know you got it for Absolutely, yeah, good, sure. All
5: right. Somebody called earlier and wanted to ask you
3: about your wrestling experience mm. well, um, <laughs> tell us about that. Yeah. Well,
5: We're starting with a, a bunch of wrestlers we um, have teamed up with the WCW and uh, where we have uh, the first of four wrestlers has come out he's the demon and he wears jeans makeup and he's a big guy this guy is 6 foot 5 and you know the first time I met him I shook hands with him it was like shaking hands with a pot roast this this was the biggest hand this was the biggest hand I've ever held on to my (laughs)
3: gosh on the phone is Anita Anita. hi Anita hi how are you good say hi to Paul hi Paul how are you hey hey, Anita how are you pretty good thanks I was just curious to know since Paul is um,
0: married you know to an actress another person in the field I was wondering how it affects your family with you being on the road
5: always? Um, I try to be home as much as I can, and otherwise, I make sure that my wife and my son come out um, whenever possible. You know, they they come to visit me in Toronto, and and when I was on the last tour, they would come out and spend extended periods of time because you know there's there's uh, not many things in life that are more important than family.
6: That's great. I yeah. agree. How totally
5: long have you been agreed. married? How long have you been married? I've been married um, eight. Seven years.
6: So have I. Seven years, just in August. (laughs) You must be my wife.
5: (laughs) You guys have so much in common. I've
6: never been married for seven years. (laughs) It's a great feeling. Is it? It is. Um, Maybe I can reach it next time. (laughs)
3: Anita, we're going to give you tickets to go and see Phantom of the Opera with Paul. Thank you. September 30th, okay? You guys okay? are great. Write it down. Thanks for calling it.
6: Thanks. Hey, for those, those, when you were on a... Well, got to ask this question. Yes. When you were having fun... Yeah. Well, you always have fun when you have yes. Did you have a lot of fun?
5: I had more fun than you could possibly imagine.
6: <laughs> it was so much.
5: You couldn't mm. fantasize the fun I had. <laughs> the life of a rock star. On, you
6: guys were all shy yeah, sure. right to ask. That's what I'd Okay.
5: It was, uh, it was quite, the, quite the thing. Actually, the funniest thing is that um, the very... First tour that we went out on was in Canada. Oh, and yeah, um, I remember I was living home, and my dad actually drove me to the airport. And how (laughs) old were you? you? I was (laughs) twenty-five. I I was living cheap. I was, you know, I was sleeping on the sofa. But it was really funny because they drove me to the airport, and I have, you know, it's kind of like driving your kid to a bordello.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) Okay, so there you go. Both. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons did revel in their rock star status and their interactions with
0: their
6: female fans. Well, Paul
0: responded to a question about the influence of
5: KISS.
6: Everybody from Pearl Jam to Garth Brooks, very influenced by KISS. Mm. Um, How does it make you feel?
5: It's amazing because, you know, when you start off with something that you believe in, it's amazing when when you see the impact it has on other people. Mm -hmm. You know, it shows you that you were right and that it was worth fighting for something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's real important for everybody in any walk of life to, to, you know, pursue whatever they believe is is what they should be doing because there's always somebody to knock you or tell you you can't accomplish something. Usually the people who tell you you can't accomplish something are the ones who failed. So you're better off just following your gut instinct. And I'm here to say that, you know, sometimes that can turn out real well.
6: Oh, it's great. Sure. How's
5: Gene doing? He's great. Just spoke to him yesterday. He's uh, in L.A. and he's uh, um, working on a whole bunch of projects while while, um, we have some downtime. And uh, he's great. He lives literally three minutes away from me.
6: So you guys get together a lot when you're back? Not in that LA? much, no. you know.
5: We're, we're kind of like brothers, and, yeah. and you know, you don't necessarily want to see your brother every day.
1: Yep, especially when that brother is Gene Simmons. There you go, Paul Stanley from 1999, Gene Simmons from 1976 and 79 on famous lost words. As we honor the greatest band of all time. Well, no, it's <laughs> it's just Kiss. Never mind. <laughs> Still to come, a band that was very influenced by Bob Dylan and influenced him to change his sound. Some great stories about some classic songs are up next. From April of 1965, that's The Birds and Mr. Tambourine Man, written by Bob Dylan.
0: Tom, if you're looking for an American counterpoint to the British invasion... Probably the two biggest and most influential bands were the Beach Boys and the Birds, groups that 50-plus years on are still making music in one form or another. Mm. Now, the Beach Boys were the hit juggernaut, to be sure, but the importance of the Birds rings down through the ages like the chime of Roger McGuinn's Rickenbacker 12-string guitar and can be heard on the records of the Eagles, the Bangles, Tom Petty, R.E.M., and here, Blue Rodeo. Yeah. A big part of their legacy is an amazing collection of brilliantly written or covered songs that went a long way to establishing movements like folk rock, country rock, and the more short-lived raga rock as personified by the hit Eight Miles High. Oh. So more than any other band, I think the Birds brought folk music into the mix with their Dylan covers like My Back Pages, Chimes of Freedom, All I Really Want to Do, and their masterstroke, Mr. Tambourine Man. Today's interview is with band leader and still leader of the Birds, Roger McGuinn. He walks us through a collection of some of their greatest recordings, starting with the one that launched their career.
3: Well, starting with Mr. Tambourine Man, the first time I heard it was on a demo tape, or demo uh, disc, uh, with Jack Elliott and Bob Dylan, and we just went bananas, we thought it was great, you know, and we all took uh, lots, sort of, to see who'd sing the lead on it and everything. And I ended up being the one, because uh, I'd known Dylan back in the village, and it, it was—I uh, guess that, that helped out or something. In any case, um, Dylan couldn't release it that year uh, because uh, of contractual difficulties having Jack Elliott on the, on the record. You know, back in those days, you couldn't uh, you couldn't put out two different artists that were on different labels at the same time. Now you can very easily, no problem at all. But back then it was a drag, so. We had the edge of about 8 or 10 months, and we, uh, we recorded the song and got it out before Dylan did, which was a good thing to do at that time. It also convinced Dylan, I think, to go electric because he uh, had heard the Beatles and everything but didn't see how his music could fit that way. And so it was sort of you know, my innovation to turn his music into electric rock and roll kind of music.
1: These are great clips, Christopher, because we are hearing Mm -hmm. about some pretty important moments here, specifically the start of the electrified folk rock era. Yeah. And the birds were very important to that. And he even mentions that Dylan was inspired to go electric after that. Imagine that. You cover a Bob Dylan song, and Bob is so inspired by your cover of his song that he changes his direction.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, that's what it says (laughs) in the history books. Yeah, Uh, I'm sure, I think the influence went both ways, let's just say. Yes, for sure. Um, Their follow-up, Turn, 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 had an unusual provenance by any standards. It was written by folk great Pete Seeger from lyrics that are almost verbatim from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible.
3: Turn, Turn, Turn was a big favorite uh, of mine. Uh, As a folk song, I was a folk singer, and I worked with Judy Collins, and I worked on her third album as the... uh, uh, musical arranger, um, and she did that song on that particular album, and I loved that song. and I really got into it. So um, when I got out on my own with the birds, and you know, I decided to do it as a piece of material. And it was suggested to me that that I give it a, a try, and I I did, and it came out sort of rock and roll, you know, or folk rock, whatever they call it, and. Uh, I became a number- one hit, just like Tambourine. Of course we were, you know, pretty hot right there. Everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season turn, turn, turn. And time to every purpose under heaven.
1: The birds and turn, turn, turn from 1965. I love the harmonies and those ringing guitars. Wow. Let's keep going, Christopher.
0: Well, you know, Tom, it's always great to hear a completely unknown, at least to me, story of a song you know well.
3: Then Eight Miles High is a good thing to move to. Eight Miles High was uh, the product of riding around in a mobile home with the birds um, across the United States and around, you know. And we uh, had only two tapes with us. We had uh, John Coltrane's India and Africa. And uh, Ravi Shankar and we kept listening to the two tapes we had a Phillips cassette recorder and a Fender amplifier that we boosted the sound through in the in the mobile home as we were driving along and then we had to overcome the road noise so we ran it through an amplifier and uh, we got so far into those two tapes that we rode eight miles high and it basically is our sort of tribute to John Coltrane as a saxophonist and jazz musician. And also, the flip side was Why, which is uh, mm-hmm. about uh, um, well, it was basically the, the, uh, our appreciation for Ravi Shankar, and that whole thing, you know, that whole Indian music thing.
0: Great story. Really great, yeah. McGuinn unravels the backstory of another Bird's classic.
3: So you want to be a rock and roll star around 67? I'm yeah. not sure either. Uh, yeah, 67 I think it was. It was right. uh, anyway, A lot of people figured that that was um, a bitter protest against our failure in 1966 with 8 Miles High Uh because we literally had been blackballed by the uh, media for doing a drug-oriented song, according to them. I mean, Mm -hmm. that was the judgment that was passed down upon us. So, uh, so you want to be a rock and roll star was our comment from the inside of what it felt like to be you know, placed in that on that pedestal and then find out uh, that they they knock you down with clay feet and all that. So it, it wasn't really that bitter. It, it was uh, a satire. It was, you know, it was tongue-in-cheek. We were laughing about it, I, I think. I mean, it was uh, it's a funny thing.
1: Sure, it's funny, but that must have been frustrating for the band to be blackballed uh, because of the song Eight Miles High. And uh, But they did have a hit with So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star.
0: I think, though... Just to put it in perspective, that bands that did get, I don't want to say banned, but shunned in some corners, certain choices they made in their songs, um, they kind of benefited in the long term. There was a cool factor to that.
1: Yes, for and,
0: sure. Um, yeah, and it drew a lot of attention, too. When you got banned, it was like, ooh, that really happened, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, but I also loved the apologies of the day, too. It's like, eight miles high? No, that has nothing to do with drugs, <laughs> You know, it's about aeronautics, you know. You know what, though, Christopher, that's a
1: great point that you make because a few weeks ago, the only exception to that, the only person who said, was this such and such song about drugs, the only person who said, yes, it was, was Kelly J of Crowbar talking about, oh, what a feeling. His opening line (laughs) to the question is, is, you know, I've been accused lots of writing about drugs when I wrote that song. And of course, the answer is, yes, I did. And then, of course, he talks about all the other influences, but he was so funny and it was so refreshing to hear someone finally totally. admit that, that drugs definitely spurred that on. Now, of course, a lot of people, including, you know, Eric Clapton and David Bowie. David Bowie once said near closer to the end of his life, if I had a chance to do it all again, I would not take drugs at all. It did not help. It hurt way more than it helped. So I just want to definitely say that because mm. in hindsight, a lot of them did say that it truly
0: was no help to them. That's a long conversation there, but it uh-huh. definitely was uh, of the culture of the moment, yes. shall we say. For sure. The birds came to be associated with a movement somewhat by accident.
3: Well, when we did protest songs, they were usually Dylan songs, and he was sincere about them, and we were too when we sang them, but we didn't do them specifically for their protest value. In other words, we were not politicos, we were more musicians and and performers. And if it happened to be a protest song, we would do it. We wouldn't uh, show restraint in doing a song just because it was a protest song. We were behind a lot of those things uh, spiritually and emotionally and uh, it wasn't our primary motivation.
1: That's a great point. They saw the value of those songs probably mostly as just great songs with great lyrics, but they weren't necessarily protest singers themselves. There you go, The Birds on Famous
0: Lost Words, Roger McGuinn. That's a wrap for this week. Our show is created by Tom Jokic and produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. I'm Christopher Ward. Hope you'll join us next week for Famous Lost Words.